Leviticus chapter 23, in a moment we'll start reading there at verse 1. In the beginning, when God made us all of one blood, one race, in the first man, Adam, and when God made a suitable helper for the first man, in the first woman, Eve, God instituted some things for us for our good and also for his glory. One pair of things God made for us was work and Sabbath-keeping. God showed us a pattern when he worked six days to create everything and then rested the seventh day, and God blessed the seventh day. Another pair of things God made for us was marriage and childbearing. God ordained that one man and one woman would be married only to each other for their whole lives. And God blessed their childbearing so that they could fill the earth with their children. When the first woman and the first man sinned against God, broke his commandment to them, and fell from their blessed condition they had enjoyed in their state of innocency, God, being merciful, did not take away these things that he had given at first. He did not cancel or revoke work or Sabbath-keeping or marriage or childbearing. After we sinned, all these things would be corrupted. All these would be marred by trouble brought on by our sinfulness. But God, being gracious, allows us still to enjoy these things that he made for us. Many centuries later, when his chosen people Israel were in slavery in Egypt, God brought them out of that bondage by his mighty power through Moses, the deliverer he sent to them. As God had promised to Moses ahead of time, he brought them to Mount Sinai in the desert or wilderness. And there God made a covenant with them through Moses, made an arrangement with them, something like a contract, a covenant with them. At Mount Sinai, God spoke to Israel directly, issuing the Ten Commandments. He spoke them himself. Then he himself carved or wrote the Ten Commandments in stone. Many other words, God spoke to Israel through Moses, but the Ten Commandments were special. Those arrangements God had made for us at, at creation, he addressed them in the Ten Commandments. God addressed marriage and childbearing. He said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he said, honor thy father and thy mother. And God addressed work and Sabbath keeping. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. The Ten Commandments, <clears throat> then having 
been spoken by God served as the cover sheet or the first page in the Mosaic law, specifying the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. That law contained many more laws than just the Ten Commandments, including many that enforced marriage and childbearing and work and Sabbath-keeping, that maintained those institutions. Some of the laws in the Mosaic Covenant enforced Sabbath-keeping with strict rule and severe penalty. And early on in Israel's time of wilderness wandering, a man was executed by stoning him to death by order of God for the act of gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. But strict rule and severe penalty were not essential features of the institution of work and Sabbath keeping from creation. So when the Lord Jesus came and died for our sins on the cross, instituting the new covenant, the old strict rule and severe penalty from the old covenant were nailed to the cross, so to speak. Those terms of the old covenant made through Moses no longer apply. They were abrogated or canceled or annulled or revoked. So when we Christians go to obey the Ten Commandments, including the Fourth Commandment about work and Sabbath keeping, we don't think that includes the strict rule and severe penalty from the Old Covenant. And neither do we think that work and Sabbath keeping are abrogated with the end of the Old Covenant because their inclusion in the Old Covenant did not mean that they were instituted through Moses at Mount Sinai. No, they were instituted through Adam in the Garden of Eden at creation. So they existed before the Mosaic Covenant, and they continue after the end of it in these days of the New Covenant. Now, hopefully that sounds familiar, because that much we have covered in previous sessions. Today, we take those principles and apply them to understanding the relationship between the Sabbath day and the many Old Covenant ceremonial holy days or holidays, feasts or festivals, many of which are referred to as Sabbaths. When God made the covenant with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, he instituted several annual holidays and monthly holidays, calling some of those days Sabbaths. The one day in seven weekly Sabbath already existed, having been ordained at creation. So in establishing the ceremonial holidays of his covenant with Israel, he incorporated the weekly Sabbath into that system, including it with many ceremonial holidays, 
as Israel's main or primary holy day. It functioned in that system much like the other holidays did. But the, but the once-a-week Sabbath remained distinct from the other holy days in that Old Covenant ceremonial system. When we as Christians seek to obey the fourth commandment, we do not think that that means observing the many Sabbaths of the Old Covenant feasts or holy days. But we also do not think that the end of all, all those Old Covenant feast day Sabbaths was the end of the once-a-week Sabbath observance. The weekly Sabbath day was included with all the other Old Covenant holy days, but also was marked off as distinct from them. It is included with them, but distinct from them. See that with me in the scripture today, and learn with me how to understand this rightly, and by it to be pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ. Leviticus chapter 23. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. Ye shall do no work. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. So do you notice that so far the subject has been announced? And then the familiar once a week Sabbath has been ordered. Not being ordered for the first time at all, but it's being ordered. And then the subject is introduced again. It was said, these are the feasts. And the Sabbath week, weekly Sabbath was ordered. Then it says again, these are the feasts going on in verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the 14th of the first month at evening is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day, the very next day, see the Passover is on the 14th, the very next day, the 15th, of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread, bread with no yeast. Elsewhere in the Bible it says they had to get all the yeast completely out of their house. In the first day ye shall have a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile or common work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation, another one. You shall do no servile work. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, well, let me pause right there. We, we just read about Passover and unleavened bread. Okay, going on in verse 9. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, when ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and ye shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf 
of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you, have, when you wave the sheaf, and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord, and the meat offering thereof shall be two-tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor, and the drink offering thereof, wine, the fourth part of a hen. And ye shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God. This shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. First fruits. Isn't that interesting? God will make their crops grow. The early crop was the barley. But as soon as there was any they could bring in, they had to take that and go devote it to the Lord before they ate any of it. <clears throat> Verse 15. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths, or seven sevens, or seven weeks. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days. So fifty days. Now you know we're talking about what in the New Testament is referred to as Pentecost. Fifty days, Pentecost. And ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. You shall do no servile or common work therein, a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, Thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleanings of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You recognize that from the story of uh, Ruth and Boaz, because he was obeying that and leaving some for the poor to come and pick up uh, after Going on in verse 23, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. First day of the seventh month, trumpets blown. And here, the day of not working is actually referred to as a uh, Sabbath. But it's not talking about the, the weekly Sabbath. Going on in verse 26, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. Uh, Yom Kippur. 
Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, and you shall do no work in that same day, for it's a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in the same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. He shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls. In the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening unto the evening, shall you celebrate your Sabbath, the great day of, of atonement. And it's to be a Sabbath. And it's a, a Sabbath in which they weren't to be rejoicing, but instead afflicting themselves. And, and so that's the day that then elsewhere it's explained. That's the one day in the year that someone could go into the Most Holy or Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and the atonement cover. And the high priest only could go in and he would take blood and he would sprinkle it on there. And in Hebrews it's explained how that all symbolizes Jesus Christ making atonement by his blood for our sins, that great day of atonement. And it's again called a Sabbath, but it's not meaning the weekly Sabbath. Verse 33, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles, or booths, or tents, for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, on the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You should do no servile work therein. So the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the one where when the people came back from exile in Babylon and uh, Ezra read to them from the law and they had never paid any attention to that before and they realized that right then was when they were supposed to be observing that, and they did. And the Bible says they hadn't observed it like that for, uh, if I recall correctly, for something like a thousand years since Joshua. Um, so uh, that's that. Now, now, the subject of the Feast of Tabernacles or booths has been introduced, but the, some other things are going to be said, and then he's, he's going to go back to that. Um, so verse 37, These are the feasts of the Lord which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering, a meat offering, a sacrifice, and drink offerings, everything upon his day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, and beside your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your freewill offerings, which ye give unto the Lord. Now he's going to go back and say some more about that last one, the Feast of Tabernacles. Some more about that, verse 39. Also in the fifteenth day, in the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day, it shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day, it shall be a Sabbath. Again, not the weekly Sabbath, the extra Sabbaths to go with this annual festival. And you shall take you on the first day of the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days." And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. 
You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelite born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths or tents or tabernacles when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. We know to make a distinction between the temporary Old Covenant feast day Sabbaths and the perpetual one-day-a-week Sabbath day from the law by noting the separation of the weekly Sabbath from the others in this list here in Leviticus 23. I pointed out to you the interesting structure of this in a couple of places. It says at the beginning of this chapter, the Lord said to Moses, speak unto Israel, tell them, these are the feasts of the Lord, and then it gives the weekly Sabbath. And then it introduces again and says, these are the feasts of the Lord, the Holy Convocation. But it doesn't set off any of the other ones that way. Um, the weekly Sabbath is set off by itself in that structure. It's first, and it is separated from all the rest of them by that rhetoric. Uh, so that right at the beginning of this chapter. Then near the end, verses 37 and 38, there's a summary statement being given, and it says, so these are all the feasts and these are all the offerings that you're supposed to do besides the Sabbath of the Lord. And so again, there at the end, the, the, the note is made that this whole list of things you've got here that you're to do, it's all besides or in addition to or distinct from the weekly Sabbaths that you do. Whatever your observations are on the weekly Sabbath day, um, when you do observations like that on these annual festival days, those are all besides the ones you already are doing on the weekly Sabbath. So we know to make a distinction between the temporary Old Covenant feast day Sabbaths and the perpetual one-day-a-week Sabbath day by that separation that we see of the weekly Sabbath from the others in this list and by the difference in frequency of observation between the weekly Sabbath and the annual feast days. The several Sabbath days of the Old Covenant feasts that we read about here, they were annual, once-a-year Sabbath days. When so-and-so day of so-and-so month comes around, then you have this observance, which includes these additional Sabbath days. They're annual. <clears throat> this list includes the annual ones, but not the monthly ones. Other places in the Old Covenant law, we could read that the first day of every month or the new moon was also a holiday or holy day 
for Israel. So there were annual and monthly uh, holy days or holidays. But Israel's primary holy day, holiday, also the one ordained at creation and the one we still observe today as Christians, is the weekly or once-a-day Sabbath day. The ones that were monthly and annual were the ones that were distinctive to the Old Covenant with Israel, whereas the weekly Sabbath day existed before and continues after, in addition to being part of the Old Covenant observance. We know to make a distinction between the temporary Old Covenant feast day Sabbaths and the perpetual one-day-a-week Sabbath by the separation of the weekly Sabbath from the others in this list of Leviticus 23 and by the difference in frequency between the weekly Sabbath and the annual and monthly feast day Sabbaths and by the use of the very interesting term the Sabbath of the Lord, to describe only the weekly one day in seven Sabbath day, the Sabbath of the Lord. While several holidays in Israel were called Sabbaths, only the weekly Sabbath was referred to as the Sabbath of the Lord. And that word Lord there, which you probably see in your Bible in all caps, is that word, uh, is the tetragrammaton, that word Jehovah or Yahweh that means something like I am and God gave for himself to be called by. The Greek New Testament, when quoting such a place in the Hebrew Old Testament, just uses the Greek word kurios, meaning Lord. So following that New Testament practice, then typically when our translators render that word into English, they use our word for Lord, just like the Greek New Testament did. And the convention was invented long ago to put it in all caps so that you would know it's one of those places where the Hebrew word is that special word for the name of the Lord. So that this term, the Sabbath of the Lord, or the Sabbath of Jehovah or Yahweh. And in some of the Bibles it'll say, or it'll say, the Lord's Sabbath, or it'll say the Sabbath to the Lord. The Bible I'm working from says the Sabbath of the Lord. Um, that special term is only used to refer to the once-a-week Sabbath. We see it in two places in our passage today. Leviticus 23 Verse 3, right there near the beginning where the one day a week Sabbath is, is being uh, commanded. It says there, six days shall work be done, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And then verse 38, which I referenced a minute ago where it says besides the Sabbath of the Lord, meaning, you know, all these annual ones, but those are all besides the weekly one. 
Leviticus 23.38, beside the Sabbaths of the Lord, and beside your gifts and beside all your vows. There, it's plural. Um, Apparently, that can be said either way, referring to the same thing. The Sabbath of the Lord, the Sabbaths of the Lord, um, are the once-a-week Sabbaths, the the one in seven. We know to make a distinction between the temporary Old Covenant feast day Sabbaths and the perpetual one-day-a-week Sabbath day by the separation of the weekly Sabbaths, the weekly Sabbath, from the others in the list, by the difference in frequency, the weekly Sabbath once a week, the others once a year or once a month, and the use of this special term, the Sabbath of the Lord, that is used only to describe the weekly Sabbath, and then by inclusion of the weekly Sabbath, but not the other feast days in the Ten Commandments. I'll read from Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 8 and going partway into verse 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is, and here's a special term again, the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It says the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the Ten Commandments are are, uh, spoken by Moses to the new generation that has grown up in the wilderness. And there he says about the same thing and uses the same term, the Sabbath of the Lord. Um. The Ten Commandments are all moral law. That is, they are matters of right and wrong for all men everywhere. In the Old Covenant law, there are things that are just matters of ceremony. Um, there is just ceremonial law. Um, all, all the stuff about kill a certain lamb at a certain time and eat certain things and don't eat certain other things and it's on this certain day of the year. All, all, that, all that is ceremonial law. And there's a lot in the Old Covenant law that's civil law. If someone steals something and then he's caught, then here's, what, here's how he has to pay it back. If someone does some wicked thing, then... Here's how he is to be judged, and here's the punishment to be inflicted. Civil law. Um, we have, we're familiar with that because our, our government you know, makes, makes civil laws. We have ceremonial law of a kind in the New Covenant. You know, we're going to, in a little while, God willing, take the Lord's Supper. Uh, recently, we had uh, baptism. And God willing, we you know we'll have baptism uh, next time somebody is, is converted and professes faith. Uh, those are ceremonies. We know to do them by ceremonial law that God, that the Lord Jesus gave us. Um, there is lots of ceremonial law in the Old Covenant. And there's lots of civil law in the Old Covenant. 
Most of what we just read in Leviticus chapter 23 is ceremonial law. You could even say that when the Sabbath day given at creation is included with all the other ceremonies, you could even say it is functioning as ceremonial law. But the Ten Commandments are different. The Ten Commandments are moral law. Moral law, that is, matter of right and wrong for all men everywhere. Now, most of the Ten Commandments are easy for us to understand as being moral law because they are natural moral. That term, when hyphenated, uh, came into use centuries ago. They are natural moral. Or, sometimes the term was used um, in the opposite order, hyphenated, to mean the same thing. Most of the Ten Commandments are moral natural. That term, hyphenated. Moral natural, or natural moral, hyphenated. They are moral law, and they occur naturally, so that as soon as God had made Adam, it was already in Adam by nature to know that stealing is wrong and killing somebody for no reason is wrong. Um, it's just in there naturally. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about that in the, in the early pages of of Romans, where he says that even the Gentiles who are out there and have never heard about the law, never don't know anything about the Bible, never heard the Ten Commandments, they already know what's right and wrong. Sometimes they do what's right and their conscience excuses them. Sometimes they do what's wrong and their conscience condemns them. They know, they have God's law in that natural uh, way. They have law in them that is moral natural or natural moral. So when laws that are already in us by nature, we just know them naturally, when they appear in a law code, we accept them very easily as being right. You know, if something is passed by your city council or your uh, county commissioners or your state legislature, or your uh, federal legislature, or in, in places where you don't have self-government and there's just a monarchy or some sort of dictatorship, when, when whoever's in charge dictates a law that is already in you by nature, then you very readily accept it as, as moral. As, but then... Um, it's much harder to accept as moral a law that is not in you by nature, but you only know because God said. A law that is positive moral. Positive not being, in this case, used as the opposite of negative. Positive being used as the alternative to natural Positive, meaning the lawmaker said so, 
and therefore it's law. That's positive law. Now, when there is a law that is a law for everybody, everybody's got to obey it, but it's only a law because the lawmaker said. That's moral law because it's a matter of right and wrong for everybody, but it's positive moral because it's not natural to you. It's only that way because God said. And the Sabbath commandment is of that kind. When God created Adam, well, sure, if there were things in him like that he needed to worship God, it could be figured out naturally that he needed time to worship God and things like that. But the exact thing that he was to work six days and rest from work one day in seven to worship God, that is not in us naturally. But God said, and he said right at first, And he said it when our whole race was in Adam. And so it is right and wrong for everybody, but we only know it to be right or wrong because God said. So that kind of law is law that is, this is the proper term for it, it is moral positive hyphenated or positive moral hyphenated. Most of the Ten Commandments are natural moral or moral natural. Thou shalt not steal. Well, you know you don't want somebody to steal from you. You know it would be wrong for somebody to steal from you. Um, You you might also know it would be wrong for you to steal from somebody else. Um, Easy. But that you are to work six days and rest from work one day, a day then to be holy unto the Lord. You don't know that by nature. It's not in you naturally. You know, some of that is in you naturally, but not the, not the whole thing. But God gave it to our whole race in Adam, and therefore it is moral. It is right and wrong for everybody. It's just moral positive or positive moral, not moral natural or natural moral. That's why it feels different to you, and that's why it ends up being a matter of controversy. Um, it's more, it's understood with more difficulty than the moral natural. But the whole matter of the Ten Commandments is all moral law. Um, That's one of the characteristics of the Ten Commandments. Everything in it is a matter of right and wrong for everybody. And it's not a matter just of right and wrong for Israel in the Old Covenant. It is a matter of right and wrong for Israel in the Old Covenant, but not merely for Israel in the Old Covenant. It's a matter of right and wrong for everyone. So the inclusion, the understanding of what the Ten Commandments are, moral law from God directly in Ten Commandments, and then the inclusion of the one day in seven weekly Sabbath in that moral law, helps us to understand from the law itself um, that there is a distinction between the many Sabbaths associated with all these different ceremonies and the one day in seven weekly Sabbath. So we know to make a distinction between the temporary Old Covenant Feast Day Sabbaths and the perpetual one-day-a-week Sabbath by the separation 
of the weekly Sabbath from the others in this list by the difference in frequency, the once-a-week Sabbath being weekly, the others being monthly or annual, the use of this special term, the Sabbath of the Lord, or the Lord's Sabbath, to describe only the weekly Sabbath, not the other additional ones, and by the inclusion of the weekly Sabbath, but not any of the others in the Ten Commandments. The whole system of holidays and Sabbaths that we just read about here, the whole system of holidays and Sabbaths from the Old Covenant passed away when Jesus died on the cross. The most uh, vivid communication of that being, as I've told you many times, God himself tearing the veil in the temple in two. That temple was only there because of positive ceremonial law. The veil was only there because of ceremonial law. God tearing it down, tearing it up, shows that the ceremonial law from the Old Covenant was abrogated, was ended. No one need observe those things anymore. Certainly no one should be told to observe those things anymore. The weekly Sabbath, then, is no more a part of that system. And Sabbath observance, as it was in the Old Covenant, should not be pushed on anyone. But the one day in seven rest that God gave us at creation could not and did not pass away with that Old Covenant system. It predated those Old Covenant ceremonies, and is not of the same kind with them. There remains a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God until the Lord Jesus comes back. More about that in future sessions, God willing. In saying that we Christians do not observe the Old Covenant feasts, I do not at all intend to say that they have no meaning to us. I would say uh, at one time, you know, I, I would say, you know, this afternoon if someone asked or something, I would say, don't try to tell anybody they that he needs to observe the Passover, that he needs to do the Seder. It'll be so much better for him as a Christian if he does that than if he doesn't. If anybody tries to say that around here, I would say, don't say that to us. We don't believe that. Uh, the, The Bible speaks against that. Don't try to tell us it'll be better for us as Christians if we observe the Old Testament feasts. I'll say that. But at the same time, um, I'll say, let's read about the Old Testament feasts. Let's study them. Let's know them. Let's understand them. They are very meaningful to us because they point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. They help us to understand him and what he's done for us and how much we needed it to be done for us. What he has done for us already in his death and resurrection. 
how we are to live for him and what he will do for us when he comes back again. I'll look back in Leviticus chapter 23, um, where we started, and I'll make reference to the matter in verses 5 and 8 about the Passover and unleavened bread. On the 14th of a certain month, they are to kill the Passover, and then from the 15th and for the next week, they're to live with no yeast or leaven in their food or even in their house. Now, um, I'm going to return to Leviticus 23, so if you're going to page with me to 1 Corinthians, you might mark your place because we'll come right back to Leviticus 23. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that uh, awful case of the man living in grotesque immorality and unrepentant, and the church thinks it's good that they are just letting him be like that, and the apostle is correcting them and saying, no, that, that man needs to be thrown out, excluded, expelled, until he's repentant, then, then he'll be welcomed back in. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, the apostle says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And everybody knows that. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, by which he doesn't mean actual observance of the Old Covenant feast. Listen to what he means. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We want to read about and understand the Old Covenant holy days of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We want to study that and understand it because it's one of the best ways that we then can understand what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death and how we are to live in holiness because of that. Uh, you know, it can be talked about in principle. It's good to you know, assert it uh, make the make the statements of doctrine, but the Lord knows us and knows that we'll benefit greatly from understanding that feast and then knowing Jesus Christ in terms of it. We are like like homes with leaven in them. We're like lumps of dough with yeast in them, and the yeast all through it. Yeast symbolizing sin. But then when Jesus Christ has died on the cross, he has dealt with sin for us. When we believe in him, then we're, we're uh, counted righteous or without sin instead of being counted sinful. And the work begins in us of getting sin out of us. We repent in the name of Jesus Christ and we're forgiven the guilt of our sin, so then we 
work individually and as a congregation and as households to put sin to death and live by the Spirit and walk in holiness. Like taking all the leaven out of our house and like throwing away all the dough that has leaven in it and starting with a new lump that doesn't have any leaven in it. You see, the Old Testament feasts are very meaningful to us. We don't do them. We don't want anybody to tell us we should do them. But we want to read about them. We want to hear about them. We want them preached to us in New Testament light. All right, now I'm, I'm going to come back to 1 Corinthians in a minute. So you might stick a finger there. And I'm going to go back to Leviticus 23. And I'm going to refer where it, um, from verses 9 to 14. And this is that matter of bringing the first fruit and then later bringing the whole harvest. When the first little bit has grown, you take that and that's the first fruit. You go devote that to the Lord uh, and, and then later you come back and you bring an offering from the rest of the harvest. Okay. Now I'll go back to 1 Corinthians and to, and to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And this is where apparently there were some people going around saying there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead. Um, the apostle said that as the gospel went out um, to the Greek-speaking uh, Greco-Roman world around there, uh, that someone would be killed and then rise from the dead sounded totally foolish to them. That wasn't part of their uh, system. And so Paul went around preaching that Jesus Christ was resurrected. And people said that is foolish. And apparently there were even some people who believed in something about Jesus Christ and called themselves Christians but did not believe in the resurrection. And, and the apostle was saying, well, if there's no such thing as resurrection... You know, then Jesus can't have risen. Or people might have been saying, yeah, okay, Jesus rose, but the rest of us aren't going to rise. You know, he was God as well as man, so maybe he could rise, but the rest of us, we can't have resurrection. And so the apostle is saying, well, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then Jesus can't have risen. And if that were so, we would have been telling you all wrong and we would be a terribly sad case. He says, but it's nothing like that because, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, but now... Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and even so in Christ also be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. So there he's talking in terms of that old covenant festival. Um, and, and see, it's so, it's so much easier to understand when put in those terms. Because we know all about this. As you've been around garden or farm or anything, you understand you're, you know, you're out there and something's been planted and it looks like it's never going to come up. And you go out there and check every five minutes. And then eventually... A radish comes up, right? Those are always the ones that germinate the most quickly. You know, something comes up. And so you have something that has come up as fruit. 
But then 99% of the rest of what you planted or are going to plant hasn't come up yet. But what's going to happen? Well, another one's going to come up eventually and another one. And then before you know it, the whole garden will be up or the whole field of wheat will be up. And eventually then there will be the harvest. Well, that's what it's like with the Lord Jesus Christ and those who trust in him. The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But we haven't risen from the dead yet. And it has seemed like a long time. It has seemed like a week has gone by, and a month, and a year. And it, actually now, it's, it's something like 2,000 years have gone by. Well, in the ceremonial system, it was seven sevens. Seven sevens have to go by. Well, what did the Lord Jesus mean to Peter when he said, no, you don't forgive somebody seven times, you forgive him 70 times seven? He didn't, he didn't mean you know, a certain, that many times, then you quit forgiving. No, he just meant forgiveness goes on and on and on and on. Um, it's used for an indefinite long, indefinite large amount or an indefinite long number. Seven sevens are going to go by in between when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and when those of us who have believed in him rise from the dead. But it will happen on a certain day. Seven went by and seven and seven and seven. But after seven sevens, then one more day and they brought in the rest of the offering from the, from the main harvest. And so here the Apostle Paul appeals to that so that we can know when we have trusted in Jesus Christ, he's the one who rose from the dead already. But he is like the first fruits offered to God. We also will be offered to God in that resurrection, um, like, like, in the, like in that uh, Feast of Pentecost. You see, you see the, these things, they're not for us to observe. Don't accept anybody who tries to get you. Hey, you know what's really meaningful? If you, if you go through the motions of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles, oh, it's great. Don't, get any, don't buy any of that. Don't let anybody impose that on you. But as to reading about it, as to talking about it, as to preaching it, as to meditating on it, oh, yeah, we want that because it's all about our need for a Savior and the Savior being sent, the Savior dying for us, the Savior rising again, us believing in Him and living a life of holiness until He comes back and raises us all with Him who have believed in Him. So when we as Christians seek to obey the fourth commandment, we do not think that that means observing the many Sabbaths of the old covenant feasts or holidays. But we also do not think that the end of all those old covenant feast day Sabbaths was the end of one day a week Sabbath observance. No, there is still a Sabbatismos or Sabbath observance for the people of God. That one day a week Sabbath, it started at creation before the old covenant. It continues now uh, in the days of the new covenant. Amen. Let's pray about that.